1: podcast you've been waiting for. Well, as long as the podcast you were waiting for was about football and international relations. That's right. Today we'll be diving into the heart of the Russian motherland to talk to you about Russia and the World Cup. Do the Russians have home advantage now that they're hosting the World Cup? Are they playing an offensive strategy in the game of power politics? Will FIFA sponsorships kick off their energy expansion plans? Will Russia score more energy export goals? Or is the country offside in multilateral institutions? And just how messy is Russia's bureaucracy? We'll be talking about Russian foul play in international politics, whether there will be red carded in the Asia-Pacific, or given extra time in Europe. And if there'll be a penalty shootout between centre players Putin, Trump and Kim. Has Russia been benched in global politics, or are they just playing the long ball game and waiting for the perfect striking position? Hello and welcome to the Policy Forum pod the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy issues affecting Australia and its region. I'm Maya Bandar and I'll be your podcast host for today. Policy Forum pod and Policy Forum itself are made possible by Crawford School of Public Policy. And I reckon that Crawford School is a really great place to study. And if you're interested in finding out more about your study options here, head to crawford.anu.edu.au. So it's a game of two halves in this podcast today. In the first half, I'll be joined in the studio with Elizabeth Buchanan and Matthew Sussex. We'll be discussing Russia's international reputation during the World Cup. Then, in the second half, we'll hear from Olga Krasniak, who will be giving us a Russian perspective all the way from South Korea. We'll be talking all things Russia and the Asia-Pacific. Then after that, I'll be back for some post-match analysis with co-presenter Sharon Bessel. We'll be answering some of your questions and providing some commentary of our own. And as always, we would love to hear from you. So if you've got any feedback, comments or questions for us, please feel free to contact us on any of our social media platforms. You can find us on Facebook, where we are Asia and the Pacific Policy Society, or on Twitter, where we are Apps Policy Forum. Or of course, you can always email us. Our email is podcast at policyforum.net. So if you love football and if you're interested in Russia, but maybe not if you like Russian football, stay tuned and enjoy this pod. Okay, so today I have Dr Elizabeth Buchanan and Matthew Sussex here with me to talk about Russia and the World Cup and Russia's international reputation and its role in the Asia-Pacific. Now, Dr. Elizabeth Buchanan is a Europa Visiting Fellow at the ANU Centre for European Studies, and her specialisation is on Russian foreign energy strategy and Russian polar strategy. So thank you so much for coming in, Liz. Thanks for having me. And Matthew Sussex is the Academic Director at the National Security College, and his main research specialisation is on Russian foreign and security policy. So thanks for coming in, Matt.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Now, the World Cup kicks off on the 14th of June, or in Australia it's 1am on the Friday, which is nice and early. Um, Are either of you supporting any team in the World Cup? Who will you be rooting for?
3: Um, I don't follow soccer at all, so I don't have sort of a horse in this.
2: Well, look, um, I'm half Polish, so um, I'm hoping that Robert Lewandowski scores a lot of goals, mainly on behalf of my son, who idolises him, but apart from that, I, I really don't have uh, have any skin in the game. Go, go Aussies, I suppose.
3: Actually, Australia. Is Australia even any good at football? Yeah, Australia's come in at number 10 in terms of highest ticket sales for this wow. World Cup. Well,
2: yeah. Generating income.
3: There you go. Well... Um, A Russian website,
1: gazeta.ru, likens the Russian national team to a pianist who lacks practice. And sportsdaily.ru has noted that Russia are the lowest-ranked team in the tournament. So probably good that neither of you are supporting Russia in this World Cup because I don't think they will do very well at all. Now, although these facts are hardly surprising, when Russia was first awarded the World Cup hosting rights, there was a feeling of hope and excitement within Russia that maybe they could do well and reassert Russian dominance. But now in 2018, Russia is the lowest ranked team in the world. Now, do you think that this low ranking and this low status is reflective of Russia's position on the world stage?
2: That's a really good question. (laughs) Let's (laughs) unpack that. It depends how you measure status, I think. Um, It depends whether you think that status is based on international legitimacy or legitimacy within an international order that tends to be underwritten by liberal democracies in the West.
3: Mm. If alternatively
2: you think that, you know... um, that international order might be changing to something else. Um, then Russia's position is it goes up and down depending on on where you measure it.
1: So does the disintegration of their football team run parallel to the disintegration of Russia's democracy and Russia's prominence? Oh, I absolutely. I think it happened before that. Yeah, <laughs> 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 I don't think the two. You...
3: Um, it's also a question of what, how this is all sold and packaged at home for the domestic audience. I don't think it would matter that Russia loses all the games. Um, it's the fact that they've been as it would be sold to the domestic audience, tapped on the shoulder to host this International World Cup. There's some legitimacy there, at least inferred, or will be sold.
2: Yeah, I mean, Russian democracy was, frankly, sidetracked as early as 1993 when they had a referendum that gave then-President Boris Yeltsin a super-presidential constitution, the ability to rule virtually by decree, which is something that uh, Vladimir Putin eagerly picked up and decided that wasn't enough and needed to sort of strengthen the vertical even more. so um, regardless of how well the football team performs, mm-hmm. um, I think the um, the case of sad case of Russian democracy um, is something that that's more now history than anything else.
1: Now the World Cup is putting Russia back on that international stage and everyone is now looking towards Russia as we are doing right now in this podcast. And I guess some would argue that Russia's international reputation or its brand is quite toxic. And that's especially with the poisoning of Sergei Skripal and the alleged meddling in US elections and possibly Brexit as well. And of course, the annexation of Crimea. And so do you think the World Cup will do anything to detoxify Russia's brand? And how is uh, hosting the World Cup affecting Russia's international reputation? Is it making that reputation more positive or is it focusing on that corruption and that sort of toxic
3: brand? Uh, again, I don't think it really matters to the domestic audience. Um, but to the international audience? the international audience. audience well, we can look at what Sochi Olympics did. That didn't really help things either.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, Russia's international brand in the West is pretty badly tarnished anyway. And I think Putin doesn't really worry all that much uh, about the negative press he gets, whether it's in the EU or the United States, because he's going to get that press anyway. Um, and the Skripal poisoning is another example of, effectively, uh, Russian intelligence service using London and other parts of the United Kingdom as a sort of de facto battleground, um, and uh, so things like that have hurt Russia's reputation. But the World Cup won't rehabilitate it in any respect. Um, mm, I, think I think this is absolutely right in saying this is all about domestic politics.
3: It's also a question whether that's even an aim if. You know the Kremlin really seeks to, as you say, fix international reputation. Um, I think we make a lot of assumptions in the West that, like with joining the G eight, that Russia would like to rejoin, or that Russia wants to be known as you know a good, helpful, constructive power. I think it's more about being irrelevant, sort of rightful, have rightful standing on the international stage. Yeah, so you think it doesn't really matter how Russia is being talked about as long as they are being talked about? Yeah, to some extent.
2: Yeah, I think Putin doesn't care so much about legitimacy. Mm. Uh, That comes from international recognition and compliance with international law and norms. He cares more about the legitimacy that's conferred by perceptions of Russia as a great power.
3: And these perceptions, they're heavily filtered. We've got to look at how sort of the state-run media operates in Russia. The image that uh, the domestic audience gets is heavily crafted anyway. The Russian gas company Gazprom is a sponsor of FIFA
1: and as we know the Russian economy is heavily dependent on energy sales. So how will the World Cup affect Russian energy exports and does Gazprom and other Russian gas companies, like where do they play in Russia's international energy expansion
3: plans? Sorry a heap of questions there. Uh, First of all I just want to unpack the FIFA, sort of Gazprom linkage. So I know that has been made, and you've just made it again. Um, It's important to note that Gazprom was brought on board by FIFA uh, before events on the Crimean Peninsula in 2014. So I think the two can really sort of correlate there. Gazprom has a history of being really interested in soccer. Um, I think recently they even sponsored a team, Chelsea, but yeah, in the British League. And how is this any different from firms such as Emirates? which is state-owned by the UAE, also having you know, a huge foothold in the soccer world, we just tend to sort of focus on Gazprom. I guess rightfully so, it is somewhat of a sort of arm of Kremlin foreign policy uh, on the energy. Did you want to...?
2: Yeah, sure. Mm. I mean, uh, certainly Gazprom is, is effectively a state-owned asset with which the Russian government can play resource diplomacy, which mm. it's done with Belarus, which it's done with Ukraine. Um, and which, frankly, it does with Western Europe as well. The At least fact, every country. <laughs> yeah. And no, the fact that Germany is, is you know, 30, 35 percent reliant on Gazprom is a really powerful strategic lever. Um, and, uh, and, and that is why, for instance, you see Western sanctions against Russia uh, in response to Crimea, in response to the conflict in uh, the Donbass region of Ukraine, right. never going near the question of energy imports or exports from Russia—it's all about other things, um, because otherwise the uh, the Germans and others don't want to risk the Russians turning off the gas tap, which would have profound impacts on their their industry. So it is it is part of the Kremlin's political leverage.
1: And I guess having it as a sponsor of FIFA it is just making
3: Gazprom a little bit more prominent and a little bit more noticed. I mean, it's hand in hand with Russia Inc, right? Mm. Um, but it's also a funding issue. I, I don't know the final costing, is it like $14, 13000000000 billion? Yeah, something for, like that. Yeah, for the Russian World Cup. This is what they've spent. Obviously, Gazprom has kicked in some funds there. Where's the money coming from? I haven't seen anything to shed light on that. But the majority of the funds have gone into infrastructure projects. And this is also how it's been sold to the domestic audience. So these are trains, these are roads, this is infrastructure that did not exist that is really, really, you know, pertinent. Um, The World Cup's not just held in Moscow or St Petersburg, it's in a number of other towns that, if you just think of the mass in terms of size of Russia. So the gas exports are helping the infrastructure. Oh, the funds. The funds, yeah.
2: So, I mean, if you're, you know, an average average Russian living in a, a city or town that gets to host a World Cup game, you're going to see the, the World Cup potentially as a very good thing because it's an infrastructure bonanza. Now, whether in fact that is actually the product of a great big net loss by the Russian government in terms of hosting it, or whether you know it actually makes money on the deal, which is highly unlikely, um, it's still something that is going to make you more sympathetic towards the regime in Moscow. It's going to make you more sympathetic to Vladimir Putin, and it's going to make you think that that Russia is very active in the world on the world stage.
1: Now, I guess we we're talking about infrastructure and gas, and how that's all seen as a good thing. But China is asserting its Belt and Road Initiative, and how. Is that reflective of Russia's interests or how does Russia view this initiative by China?
2: Well, the Chinese have a saying that um, you know, they'd like to try and boil a Russian frog, you know, which is if you stick a frog in a pot of tepid water, the frog's really happy and it'll swim around. But as you crank up the heat, it'll not be happy. It'll be alarmed and then panicked. But there's <laughs> it's that's going to
3: had that the point you can get the Russians to before. Yeah. yeah. But,
2: I mean, the Russians recognise that the Chinese are trying to do this too. So China is effectively the only uh, major power with investment capital to spend that they that can be used to develop infrastructure in the Russian Far East. So yeah. the Russians have made a lot of, lot out of that, but there are heavy conditions being exacted by the Chinese as The well.
3: BRI project in itself is... Makes sense. Just basic geography, right? Mm. Um, And in theory, it's a goer, but in practice, they've just gone out to tender, haven't they, recently, for more countries to come on board and help, you know, um, achieve the project.
2: In many respects, the you know the Shanghai Cooperation Organisation recent summit, um, where the Chinese offered, I think, $4.5 to $5 billion worth of infrastructure projects. That's all tied to Belt and Road. Um, what the Russians don't want here is to be locked into utilising Chinese-dominated transit corridors for energy or for other things that the Russian government exports, but predominantly for energy.
3: And this is where a couple of ports in North Korea... Are really important uh, for the Kremlin to be able to export energy, uh, gas mainly and coal as well, down into South Korea, but also to utilise the ports to link up to the uh, Northern Sea Route to ship from Asia to Europe. Essentially, making sort of the Polar Silk Road, I think Beijing calls yep. it, is sort of you know heavily controlled, as it were, by Russia.
2: So yeah, Russia has about three outs. From Belton Road, it can go with its very small border to North Korea, but then and then to uh, to sell liquid natural gas via the South Korean port at Busan. Um, that is predicated on a much better. North Korea South Korea relationship, which we haven't seen yet. Um, it's got the Northern Sea Route, which is possible, but not
3: all really year uh, round. It's
2: yeah, I mean, with with A the bit price. Icy. No, it's <laughs> the price of it's the price of oil. You know, because fuel prices are low at the moment, it doesn't make economic sense to go over the top, if as it were. And the third route it's got is kind of fire India. Um, with a sort of gas pipeline and that way to, through to the Middle East. But that is reliant on the Indians playing ball with Pakistanis and they don't want to do that because yeah. they see them as a Chinese proxy.
3: Absolutely, with anything to do with energy, uh, especially in the Eurasian sort of mass, it's all a long-term strategy. You're looking at sort of 20 minimum years for most of these projects to have sort of the demand. But Russia's good at playing the long game.
2: And I think the other thing we have to remember is also that, um, you know, China has invested not just in Russia but in a bunch of other Central Asian states because the Chinese don't want to be vulnerably over-dependent on Russian energy. They want to have options. The whole point of energy security is is not to be dependent but to have source flexibility. Uh, and okay. I think that's what Belt and Road does in an energy context as well.
3: In the same, so the same way, Russia's also turned to Asia to diversify customer base as well long-term strategy. So PIN's really good at its long-term strategy. It's just pragmatic thinking Um, and that's the thing about Russian foreign policy in general definitely Russian foreign energy strategy just in terms of the time it takes to develop the contracts and um, deliver the resources um, they're very very predictable. Most of what Russia does in the energy sphere as well generally I want to say in foreign policy has been outlined by the ministry or the Kremlin quite predictable. And Matt you were
1: talking about the Shanghai uh, cooperation organization that just finished, didn't it? Now, how does Russia and the Kremlin view these multilateral institutions, so the Shanghai Cooperation, the G7 Summit? Do they help or do they hinder Russian interests?
2: Well, I mean, the SCO was initially a way for China and Russia to talk to one another, in 1996, it was the resolution of a border dispute between the two countries, and they'd fought, you know, basically a, a war um, <clears throat> during the Cold War era. Um, so it was sort of minilateralism that was disguising bilateralism. And then the Russians said, okay, the SCO is going to be an Asian NATO, and the Chinese wanted absolutely no bar of this whatsoever. They didn't want a sort of military counterbalancing mechanism to NATO. They wanted the SCO basically as a, a trading club, and especially an energy trading club. And since about, well, frankly, since about 2012, um, Chinese preferences have been winning out. And what you saw from the most recent uh, SEO summit was that you had new members like India uh, saying, oh, well, we don't like Belt and Road, but effectively Russia and India capitulating to a, a Chinese vision for what the SEO should look like. Um, in terms of the G6, G7, G8, whatever you want to call it, I'm calling it G6 minus two at the moment. <laughs> um, Fair. You know, uh, Russia would like into, back into prestigious clubs, um, but it's very unlikely that that, that will actually happen. Um, even if, uh, you know, Trump jumps up and down and demands it, because, frankly, the, the rest of the other um, G6, G7, G8, uh, with the exception of China, aren't willing to champion that.
1: So, forgive me, G6
3: minus two, who is minus Russia? Russia and the United and States. Yes, OK. It's so new, another new development. OK. Just on the SCO, I think it illustrates sort of the hallmark of Russia today, and that's multilateralism. That's at the sort of heart of any of Putin's foreign policy at the moment, Um, of course a managed multilateralism in which Russia is recognised as, you know, a central, relevant actor. So it wants to be involved in these multilateral At the table, respected.
2: Um and preferably in control. I mean, uh, a lot of Russian multilateralism is all about it setting the rules of what it does in a regional context, whether it's the Collective Security Treaty Organization, used to be the SCO, um, uh, or various other, you know, Eurasian Union type of proposals. And none of those have really worked very well. But they're very important, I think, for Russia to be able to establish a kind of multilateral counter-narrative to the West, as in terms of the optics, but also something with significant trade heft. Now, I think it's managed to do part of the first. I don't think it's managed to do the second one. Increasingly, it is the junior partner in any relationship with China. Uh, and that's something that they've had to get to grips with and it's been quite painful to Moscow.
1: Now, we're also witnessing the Trump-Kim summit at the moment. It is happening today while we're recording this podcast. But what impact do you think that this summit will have on Russia? Will Russia see any cooperation between the US and Korea and North Korea as a threat,
3: or how will they perceive this summit? I've just been really interested in how sidelined Russia is currently, and I don't know if that's just for appearances. I'm not a career expert. Um, And if this is, they've sidelined, more importantly, on sort of their own account, and that's interesting, that sort of says something else is obviously going on in the background. I've been watching the sort of Xi Jinping-Putin bromance, I'll say it.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, look, um, I think Russia really doesn't care an enormous amount what happens with the Trump-Kim negotiations, mainly because by the very act of meeting with Kim Jong-un, Trump legitimizes North Korea. Uh, Now, this is a country that the United States doesn't in fact recognize, um, or a leadership it doesn't recognize. But the fact that this summit is going ahead recognizes Kim Jong-un, and it recognizes also the fact that they are a nuclear power. Um, So from the Russian perspective, this is perhaps in fact a good thing. Um, If nothing comes of it, then the, as is probably most likely, um, then Russia will be able to not blame, but chortle um, at the failures of American diplomacy, but also potentially the failures of Chinese diplomacy too, because it's China that's often held up as having the key Absolutely. to the resolution of this. And then
3: Russia would be there to pick up the pieces, no doubt. Um, of course, second largest trade partner for North Korea, although it's not hard, it's only 1% or something and. You China's at the balance, but also you'd assume this would also greenlight a Trump-Putin meeting as well. Yeah, the well grounds have kind of been set. Yeah. There. Now, Trump, Kim, and Putin are all
1: very interesting characters. Who are pretty much all we talk about really when we talk about these countries. It is about their leaders. But of course, Vladimir Putin is not is one day not going to be the leader of Russia. And, he'll, you know, he'll either die in power or he'll retire of his own will or he might even be forced out of office. Who knows? Um, but I guess my question is, what kind of
3: Russia do you see taking shape in a post-Putin world? Post-Putin, I think the system will endure. And I think it's really important to understand it in terms of history and the significance of managed democracy. Russia trialled our Western democracy in the early 90s. And it, I would say, failed utterly. And it's our generation now who have either had parents who were really hit hard by that, loss of jobs was a big one, who have been sort of shaped in terms of their outlook for Russia. And Russia with democracy is something feared. It is not actually wanted. I know it's a difficult thing for us to state, but... When you're looking inside, as it were, a black box, which I think to a lot of people is Russia, we need to understand democracy is not something that is sought and the system that is in place now, it appears to be working. There's obviously corruption and there's some fragility there. But for all intents and purposes, it will continue to to just be.
2: Yeah. Um, (laughs) Russia doesn't have anything like what we would recognised as a functioning liberal intelligentsia. In fact, most of those who even are on that side tend to agree with the Putin administration when it comes to major foreign policy goals. Um, so I don't see the system transforming anytime soon, either due to you know internal forces or external uh, forces. I think it'll be relatively stable. The, the crunch will come when Putin does decide to hand, to hand over the reins of power. And it's something that worries me quite a bit because Putin himself is a moderate. In Russia. We might think that he's a crazy nutbag, right? But he is a moderate, a political moderate. Now, it concerns me that he's been basically head of uh, a Russian state for an entire generation of policy makers. And policy thinkers and bureaucrats and people in important positions who not only owe those positions to him, but also have had their ideas shaped around him. And whereas Putin has demonstrated, I think he's very much a pragmatist. He doesn't care whether it's democracy, nationalism, he'll, he'll bang on any drum in order to get domestic support for something or international recognition. The next generation of Russian thinkers actually does believe the anti-Western line that they've been fed. So I tend to be concerned that the successes to Putin are all worse than Putin.
1: So it'll follow a Putin
3: legacy, but even make it more extreme.
2: Well, I actually do believe the, the it's mantra. Not, it's if it's like. not
3: something we should sort of look forward to. It's not, the is not great. And it was interesting, there's a current sort of few lines on the DFAT website for Australians heading to the FIFA World Cup. And it's it states there is a rise in anti-Western sentiment within the general population in Russia. And I mean, I wouldn't go so far so far as to say that's completely true, but the sentiment is there, it's brewing, and we don't want to see an entire country... um, In such a large country. Exactly, exactly, um, turn that way. But
2: by the same token, we don't want Russia so weakened that it fragments, because then you get, you know, 20 to 30 new states, some of which will have nuclear weapons, some of which are riven along ethnic lines or religious lines. Yeah. Um, so, So Russia is still a problem. I mean, we want to manage Russian power to some extent, but we don't want it so weak... That it's a vassal state to China or that it completely breaks up?
3: It, this is sort of a job where you just need a really great change management <laughs> practitioner. Process. And I'm thinking of think someone Putin, to facilitate. I don't think pressure does <laughs> bring change, external or, or change or change management. management. <laughs> oh, dear.
1: <laughs> um, now, I just wanted to finish on a last question coming back to the World Cup. And the next World Cup will be hosted by Qatar. And both Qatar and Russia are petrostates, and I think this is something that, Liz, that you mm-hmm. study a little bit. Um, so petrostates are oil-rich nations with fairly weak institutions. And both Qatar and Russia also have quite poor international reputations at the moment. And do you think, Liz, do you think this is just a coincidence or is there something that we can actually draw from this?
3: Oh, coincidence. Um, on the state yeah, both on, okay, um, being on, on Qatar, both World um, Cup having the World Cup in, what is it, 2022? 20, 22. 22, well, I just wanted to point out there are already calls to boycott that as well. There so were calls one. to boycott this one as well. Yes, though. already yeah. uh, for human human rights issues. What's the question? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, so do you think it's a coincidence that both these petro-states are... Hosting the World Cup, like, do you think that's oh. reflecting a shift in any sort of international reputation? No, I.
3: I wonder if they bid for them. Yeah. Do they bid for them?
2: Yeah, they generally bid for World Cups, and a lot of money right. changes so it, hands. It follows. So it
3: follows. <laughs> if you're a Petri state, your national coffers are generally quite full, depending on how you structure sort of the planning around a lower oil price.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't think Russia actually fits. The types of expectations we have around petrostates. Venezuela is um,
3: probably the best case we've got of a petrostate. Has followed the model, i.e., doesn't end well. Russia has not, and that I think comes down to a lot of the policy making and how the actual uh, energy component is structured.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think you touched on it in terms of the institutions within Russia. In a petro state we expect institutions to be really weak. In Russia, we have sort of a combination of institutions, clan-based politics and personal interests that all operate. (laughs) Yeah, that all operate in this kind of complicated web. But fundamentally you'd still have departments doing what they're supposed to do. You have a sort of institutional politics within Russia. It's not one we recognize within a democracy, but it's relatively well entrenched. Even though it's based on systems of patronage, you have the power ministries generally taking care of policy. Now, we tend to assume that Putin is in charge of everything and makes every decision in Russia. It's not the case. It's normally when something goes wrong that Putin comes in and goes, OK, this is how you sort this out. So uh, I think we, we give too little credit to an extent. Um, about the degree to which the Russian state does operate in terms of formal institutional bargaining, negotiation, compromise and, and policy as a result of that.
1: So Russian policy institutions are quite strong in the sense that they are working and they're working well. They're functional. I think the word's
3: just functional. I don't Mm. think we can make a call on the strength either way. But also a point about petrostates. um, Another defining feature is that they are sort of across the ball in terms of exploring and producing. Russia is not. Can you just expand on that a little bit? So the entire sort of Far East region of Russia, which is obviously oil and gas rich, hydrocarbon rich, a lot of it's still on the ground. They don't have the technology. They don't have the funds to get it out of the ground. And that's a, is sort of a significant component of any petrostate model would be there's a plan for that. And honestly, there's no plan. So
1: there's lots to think about here with Russia. There's lots going on in that country. And personally, I still find Russia and Putin very confusing and very... Join the club. What's the opposite of transparent? Opaque. Uh, very opaque, exactly. The there opposite. you go. <laughs> That's how I would explain Russia. And I guess with the World Cup, we're now seeing more and more people talk about Russia and talk about how Russia is, I guess, expanding its prominence and its sort of influence on the world stage. But thank you very much, thank you. Liz and Matt, for coming in and talking to me about some very confusing topics. <laughs>
2: My pleasure. Thanks a lot.
1: Thank you. So just now I was talking to Matt and Liz about the World Cup and Russia's international reputation and its energy policy. But now I'm here with Olga Krasniak, who has kindly taken the time out of her day to talk to us. Olga is a Russian-born researcher and educator. She is a lecturer in international studies at Underwood International College of Yonsei University in Seoul, South Korea, which is where she currently is now. So how are you today, Olga? Thanks for coming in. Thank you. I'm great. It's a pleasure to to talk to you, Maya. So we're here to talk about Russia's place in the Asia-Pacific region and Russia's pivot east. And the Asia-Pacific region is one of rapidly shifting power dynamics, especially with China's great power rise. But Olga, how does Russia perceive its role in this evolving
4: Asia-Pacific? Is it taking its pivot east seriously? Uh, Well, yes, I think it's it's very serious. Uh, And Putin, Vladimir Putin, he's very serious about Russia's uh, turn to Asia. And uh, I think um, that would be sort of... Te- an attempt to continue uh, foreign policy uh, of um, the previous times uh, since the period of the Russian Empire, then the period of the Soviet Union. So Russia was expanding. So Russia was a continental empire. And uh, by now, uh, when, since um, uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia definitely lost its position. And in recent years, uh, I think it would be uh, a turning, not, not a turning point, uh, but something related to continuity. And uh, Russia's pivot to Asia is about maybe to regain uh, lost influence in the region. And Russia's interest, I think, it's more pragmatic. Uh, it's um, it's something we can find in, in Russia's foreign um, policy agenda. Uh, it's about well to reestablish its influence, and uh, at the same time. Uh, something related to the security of uh, Russia's Far East because Russia's Far East its a huge region a Region, uh, well, but uh, not so many people are living there and it's about like, a security issue. Now what sort of relationship will Russia have with Asia-Pacific powers? Well it's very interesting you uh, mention about Asia-Pacific uh, because I know in Australia a new term is, is coming out it would be in the Pacific but Russia uses Asia-Pacific because as well uh, considering this um uh, geographical um, location, so it's a huge part of Asia. Russia, of course, is very uh, interested, maybe not to influence, but uh, just to, to, to keep its position and maybe just to regain something. Well, uh, as I said, that would be more uh, pragmatic interest. It's about economic cooperation. It's economic cooperation with China. Uh, even for China, Russia is not so important partner, but uh, for Russia's Far East, uh, Chinese contracts, are very important. Uh, Russia, of course, uh, of course, is very interested in peaceful Korean Peninsula because, again, it's something related to uh, economic cooperation and uh, it's not about unification of uh, Korea. So of course not, but it's about um, uh, making uh, <laughs> making profitable uh, contracts, making profitable business related to railroad system. It's about uh, making this connection uh, from. Uh, uh, from european part of russia uh to uh far, uh, far east and uh, to korean peninsula to the korean peninsula plus uh, as it would be uh, russia interested uh to run uh, Pipelines uh, in the Korean Peninsula. So, well, it's like a more pragmatic interest if we're talking about Asia. If we will expand um, uh, Russia's interest towards Pacific uh, or maybe Indian Ocean, well, uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say uh, it can be taken very seriously because Russia doesn't have this economic influence and uh, economic possibilities are not so. Um, Russia is not so powerful economically. And so, uh, well, I think the main interest, it would be Asia and the Far East in particular, but not about the Pacific, not about the the Indo-Pacific region.
1: Now, you're talking about uh, Russia's economic interests in the Asia-Pacific and its relationship with China. Now, before, with Matt and Liz, we spoke about China's Belt and Road Initiative and whether it was reflective of Russian interests. But I just wanted to get your thoughts on this. Do you think China's Belt and Road Initiative will help Russia, or
4: does Russia find it threatening? Well, uh, I, would, I would say the answer would be somewhere in between. On the one hand, uh, economic cooperation with China is very profitable for Russia. On the other hand, uh, of course, Russia uh, doesn't have uh, any plans just to follow uh, Chinese or Chinese policy. And uh, now this uh, One Belt, One Road initiative, well, it's about spreading uh, economic influence, Chinese economic influence. And of course, Russia is very cautious about it. And yes, being, uh, I cannot say uh, it, Russia would be a part of this uh, one belt, one vote uh, the, the system, uh, but uh, maybe just partly taking some cooperation. So, well, it's very controversial topic. And definitely, uh, I, I cannot see some signs uh, that uh, Russia's, uh, Russian politicians they would be happy about this initiative, but at the same time neglecting uh, this project uh, it's it's not an option either okay so you think it's a little bit of both yes uh, yes it's about like balancing it's about uh, well uh, having this cooperation economic cooperation with China and uh, at the same time uh, avoiding any potential influence. Uh, which can come from, uh, potential can come from, from China.
1: Yeah, okay. And now just on the other side, I just wanted to know if you think Russian foreign policy is too Eurocentric for Russia to be a great Asia-Pacific power? Yes,
4: I think it's, it's a very good question. Because uh, first, uh, let's let uh, let's look at the population of uh, Russian people. Well, uh, I, I might be maybe a little bit wrong with, with the numbers, but uh, it's about maybe seventy five or eighty percent of uh, uh Russian population uh, the live I- people live in the European part of russia so uh and of course the Russian people uh, feel themselves uh, um, part of european civil- civilizations of course not not Asian. so that is why uh this economic cooperation with china uh actually is not so successful and uh, I read recently. Uh, some feedback from a uh, chinese uh businessmen who actually are not so happy to work with Russians because uh russians as uh, they seem very arrogant towards chinese as an asian power and uh so well again it's it's about balancing and yes it's about certain maybe biases what people have and yes considering themselves a part of uh, the European civilization and uh being a part of the European civilization, well, uh, it, it's another controversy uh, which uh, leads people to compete. So that is why, kind of, uh, not all the time we can see friendly relationship with European uh, countries uh, and, and, and Russia. So again, it's it's a lot of controversies. But yes, it's European civil, part of the European civilization, and uh, uh, something related to Asia, that would be pragmatic economic interest and cooperation and the security, address and security dilemma. Yes. So it's a bit of a balancing act for
1: Russia between Europe and between Asia. Yes. And so now with that balancing act, I'm sure you're doing a balancing act of yourself with this World Cup, being in South Korea and being Russian. So who will you be supporting in this World Cup?
4: Will it be South Korea or will it be Russia? Okay, let me be diplomatic. I would say I support good football. <laughs> we call it football, not soccer. <laughs> so yes, I support uh, good uh, and, uh, and peaceful and yeah, good game, good, good matches. So it's something that I, uh, I would be happy to see. So you won't be yelling out Vyepod, Russia? Absolutely not. (laughs) Was that correct? uh, Did I do that well? Very close. (laughs) Very close. Yeah, so yes, I I support a good game. uh, Well, just a good game. (laughs) Because it's a show, sort of. (laughs) Yeah, I understand. I understand.
1: I don't know whether to support England or to support Australia. I don't know what I'm doing either. It's okay.
4: Just good game. Uh, well, it, it, it should be spectacular, and I hope it will be so without any problems. Uh, uh, so, well, it's something what, what I would expect uh, from the World Cup. And now I know that you've written a lot about
1: science diplomacy for Policy Forum, but do you think the World Cup is an example of sports diplomacy? Like, what does the World Cup mean for the Russian people? Do they see it as an opportunity for Russia to be back on the world stage, or how do they perceive it?
4: Well, if we're talking about uh, soft power or Russia's ability to generate soft power, I would not be so optimistic about this because this ability of uh, to generate soft power through uh, sports diplomacy, well, uh, maybe it's not a strong point of Russia because something what uh, uh, came to my mind—it's uh, a. Uh, uh, Sochi, uh, Sochi Olympics uh, four year, four and a half years ago and uh, this attempt maybe to generate soft power for uh, sports diplomacy and finally turned out to be a huge scandal uh doping scandal and, uh, and all the rest, all these related things. So, and uh, I, I wouldn't be, as I said, very optimistic about disability ability and, uh, but well, it's, it's, maybe it's better than nothing and uh, I, I know Russia's authorities are interested uh, very much uh, to uh, to make this event uh, it should be go very sm- smoothly with, without any problems. Yeah, but uh, the effect of real uh, soft power, I would question this. Yeah, well, we'll just have to wait and see how smoothly this World Cup goes. Yes, I hope yes, of course I I do hope everything will be fine and uh people will be happy and uh, just uh, watching good football and for some uh, foreign tourists or foreign uh, fans who's going to visit Russia they will have a good experience. Yes, but uh I'm not really sure uh, it will um it will restore Russia's image uh, in short term, but it would be great if if uh, it would happen but I'm not so optimistic unfortunately
1: all right well perfect thank you so much Olga for all of your insights onto this topic I really appreciate you taking your time out and to phone in from South Korea I hope you enjoyed yourself on this podcast okay thank you very much it's a pleasure to to, to
4: talk to you Maya (laughs) and be here So, Sharon, I was just talking
1: to three academics about the World Cup and about Russia and about Russia's international reputation. And it was a really interesting discussion. But first, I just want to know, are you excited for the World Cup and who will you be supporting?
0: I am wildly excited about the World Cup. I think this is the second most exciting sporting event in the world, the most exciting sporting event in the world is, of course, the Women's World Cup. Um, and Australia always performs very well there. So that's that's always a good thing. But I'm, of course, supporting Australia in the World Cup, although I think France will win. France
1: so there will you win. go.
0: I've put my put my life on the line there.
1: Now, we're also talking about how Russia was using football as... it could, Potentially using football as a way to repair its international image. And... An author on Policy Forum, Simon Chadwick, writes a lot about China and football. And he writes about how China's FIFA World Cup sponsorships, how they reflect Ch- the Chinese aim to build the country's brand as well as supporting companies. Do you think this is the same in Russia? Do you think Russia will be using the World Cup
0: to improve its international reputation? Look, I think the politics of global football are, are really interesting. I mean, people talk about it as the world game, but it genuinely is. You know, I think you go to any country, you know, any part of any country in the world. Um, and you see children, you see teenagers, you see adults kicking a ball around playing soccer, talking about soccer or football. Um, and so I think the, the global engagement of it gives it a power that many sports don't have. But of course, it's also huge business, you know, through the sponsorships, through the endorsements, through not just the payments to players, but to all of the, the the support crews that go around the game. So I think that we we sometimes forget when we just talk about it in Australia, particularly as a sport, just what a global phenomenon a global global juggernaut football is. Um, and I think you know, Simon Simon's writing on China is really interesting. It does show the way in which countries are able to use that phenomenon um, to their own ends, to both um, you know engage in um, lucrative um, economic deals through sponsorship and so on, but also promote their own brand, promote their own position. Um, And in China, you also see the way in which they're building their own league, they're bringing in foreign players, and that's about much more than sport. In Russia, I think the politics of it might be a little bit different. Um, I'm certainly not an expert on on Russia or on the politics of football in (laughs) Russia, but I think... um, you know, in some ways, Russia's probably not interested in repairing its reputation on some issues as people sitting outside of Russia might see it. I think perhaps Russia might be looking at the World Cup as a way of repairing some of the reputational damage that came from the Winter Olympics. But I think Russia's probably looking at this World Cup as a celebration of nationalism, as a celebration of Russia, celebration of probably Russian masculinity, um, rather than, you know, thinking about it in, in the way that we might might be thinking about it in China or elsewhere in the world
1: what do you think we should be looking for in these World Cup games
0: well um, beyond the football itself and particularly watching some of the great goalkeepers perform I think it would be it will be really interesting to see the way in which um, fans support the game um, there have been there's been some conjecture about whether fans will turn up to Russia whether people will go um, you know, Russia has a very strong position, the Russian government has a very strong position on issues around um, LGBT communities. For example, Um, Russia is known to have restrictions around freedom of information, um, freedom of association and so on. So will that translate to people not going and stadiums perhaps being half empty? I'm not sure. I think it would be really interesting to watch that. Um, I was in St. Petersburg a couple of weeks ago, not for the football, but just... just, for, for other reasons and I must say getting a visa was incredibly easy going across border patrols was incredibly easy people were very welcoming so there was you know this very public positive face um, and it was it was a great place to be. So I think a lot of fans who go will probably have a very good time. Whether some of those underlying tensions that are there in Russian society around individual freedoms, around collective freedoms, whether they'll bubble up, I think we'll just have to wait and see what happens.
1: Yeah, there's definitely a lot more going on in this World Cup than just the
0: football. I think it will be fascinating.
1: Now, thank you so much, Sharon, for coming in last week and having a chat about last week's podcast about Um, how to get youth more involved in public policy. Really appreciate that. Now I just have some comments from last week's podcast that I wanted to share and get your thoughts on. Jasmine Ashley uh, commented on our Facebook post that more younger ones are needed to be sure especially now while you still have the chance to salvage some of the environment and resources and that intergenerational theft is out of control and I just wanted to touch on that um, that term, intergenerational theft. What are your thoughts on what that means?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure exactly what um, Jasmine is thinking of when she when she wrote that um, that comment. Given the way it's framed, my guess would be that she was probably thinking particularly about the environment. So if we think about the environment in terms of stewardship um, and generations using the resources that they need, but also protecting the environment and being able to hand on this world, if you like, um, to the next generation. And that's something that's that's critical to the future of humanity, to the future of um, life on Earth. But over the past few generations, and particularly perhaps the last generation, um, that stewardship isn't isn't something that's been taken particularly seriously. Uh, the world is is in a pretty difficult space environmentally. You know, climate change is the, the perhaps the most pressing problem of our times. And that's a problem that this generation is handing on to the next generation. So my guess would be that that might be where Jasmine's coming from with that comment. And she's probably got a point um, in terms of what younger generations Um, and not just the current generation of young people, but into the future, what they're inheriting in in terms of an enormous mess, an enormous challenge to try to correct. Um, But we also had a chat last week, Maya, about issues of housing affordability in Australia, issues globally of increasing precarity when it comes to job security. And perhaps Jasmine's also thinking of some of those things that I think there's a lot of optimism. There are a lot of good things that are happening in the world. There are a lot of wonderful opportunities for young people, but there are some pretty pressing problems as well.
1: Yeah, I think that term is quite an interesting one and one that I find quite interesting to see and to see how it gets used. We
0: hear a lot about intergenerational inequality, mm. um, but I guess you know the idea of intergenerational theft is just pushing that a bit further and, and making a much stronger argument about what's happening.
1: Now, speaking of strong comments, I also had a comment from um, Carl Viet that was also on on Facebook and he asks where are the trailblazing young men
0: Sharon where are they well I see lots of them sitting in my classrooms, so that's good. I see lots of trailblazing young women sitting in my classrooms as well. So that's an optimistic thing when we're thinking about the future. I think this is actually a really interesting comment. Um, If we look at who holds power in Australia, and I think that comment um, came from um, some background material that was on the blog around the, the number of men in parliament in Australia. And clearly, not just men, but older men hold power in Australia. And around the world, I think we are perhaps seeing a little bit of a realignment of gender relationships. Um, the Me Too campaign is is part of that, but it's not the only part of that. I think for a, a couple of decades now, we really have been seeing um, an increasing movement towards challenging the fact that power. Is very masculine is 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 held on to by men and um, challenging that, and so perhaps spaces are are very slowly beginning to open up for young women, and importantly, I think often young women have the confidence to claim some of those spaces. So we see you know amazing young women like those three that were speaking on the pod with you last week doing incredible things. Does that mean that there are no spaces for young men? Well, I don't think so. I think young men are still doing quite well in terms of carving out careers for themselves, carving out um, spaces in in the public sphere for themselves. Does this comment suggest that maybe young men look around at the older men who hold power, at the younger women who are carving out spaces and say, where does that leave me? I mean, maybe we are in a a space where... um, Gender relations are being realigned, and that has particular implications for young men. But we were just talking about football. And, of course, if we think about um, the gender politics of football and the amount that male players are paid, the prestige and the attention that focuses on male players compared with female players, and I referred to the the Women's World Cup earlier, which is a fantastic spectacle of sport, you know, those players get paid so little. They get so little in terms of prestige. So, yeah, some interesting questions perhaps about generation and gender relations, but on balance, perhaps men are still doing okay.
1: Yeah, I think we're definitely living in an interesting time where all of these gender relations and these issues are coming up and how they're just starting to change. But I think we've still got a lot to do for gender
0: equality. I think we've got an enormous amount to do. I mean, if you look globally at, um, as we've already just discussed, um, percentages of men and women in parliament, if we look at the global wage gap, Women are still so far behind. If we look at issues of violence, particularly domestic violence, um, but other forms of violence, we've still got so far to go. So, if we're talking about a realignment of gender relations, we really are just at the very beginning of that. And perhaps one of the worrying things is will a backlash come? know, is, it, and this, we've, we've seen this occur in the past where women but also other marginalised groups start to make some progress but then spaces are closed down very quickly. So while I think we are seeing um, some potential for progress at the moment, we need to be very careful about not being too sanguine about that because almost all of the statistics tell us that we have still got so far to go in terms of achieving gender equality.
1: Mm, there's a lot to think about there and if you want to listen to that podcast, it's up on policyforum.net. I just want to give a big thank you to ANU College of Arts and Social Sciences for um, retweeting our podcast and ANU Cass mentioned that we had a powerhouse lineup. Now I just wanted to mention that one of our friends from CASS hosts the podcast Love Canberra. And on her latest podcast, she interviews one of our guests from last week, Nip Wojay So if you wanted to hear more from Nip, head over to Love Canberra to
0: um, to listen to what she has to say, and Nip is absolutely fantastic. So I think, yeah, listen to listen to the the interview that you did with her, but also that other podcast because Nip's just a, an incredibly inspirational person.
1: And there's also another um, comment on Twitter from Simon Pickup, who mentioned our new national security podcast, and he loved the first episode on the inter- Indo Pacific, and he's really looking forward to more. So Simon. Uh, the next national security podcast will be out early next week, so stay tuned for that and keep an eye out on Twitter while we be, while we'll be posting about it. And also, wanted to thank Hone Cuff for the shout out of uh, the Policy Forum Pod. She mentioned that this pod was helpful for her to keep her in the real world, so thank you for that and thank you for recommending our pod. So, Sharon, we just witnessed a very momentous occasion in diplomacy. Donald Trump and Kim Jong Un just met, and they hands for the first time at their summit in Singapore. And on Policy Forum, we've done a bit of a rapid roundup on the summit, where we've brought together um, opinions from a wide range of experts to help us um, find our way through all of the topics and challenges that will arise from the summit. Do you think anything will come out of it, though?
0: Well, I would certainly rely on our authors on of those policy forum articles more than I would rely on my own opinion here um, so well worth a read to see what they're saying I think the theater around this has been just fascinating it really is such a break um, with what we see as, as as diplomacy as usual or politics as usual so I think that part of it has just been fascinating to watch in terms of the outcomes I mean I guess watch this space um, if I were Kim Jong-un, I'd be feeling pretty pleased with the outcome. Um, you know, He had a, a one-on-one conversation with who is generally presented as the most powerful man in the world, rightly or wrongly. Um, he's been fated as a celebrity, it seems, as he walks down the streets of Singapore. Um, he's been given a legitimacy as a statesman through this process. Now, does that bring him into the fold? And does that mean that North Korea starts to negotiate and behave differently? Well, I'm I'm not sure. It was only 12 months or so ago that the world was outraged when um, Kim um, Jong-un's half-brother was assassinated in an airport in Malaysia and the regime was implicated in that there are the human rights abuses in North Korea are shocking they are shocking as we know them But it is such a closed state, we really don't have a sense of just how um, extreme some of those human rights violations are. We know that poverty is is a serious problem, but we don't know how widespread that is. Of course, sanctions have contributed to that. But I think we've almost seen a, a remaking of this political leader. Um, and I guess wherever this goes, I hope that what happens um, is to the, the benefit, not the disadvantage of the North Korean people who live under a pretty awful regime. Um, in terms of the politics on the peninsula, I think you know, the reaction of Japan and South Korea is going to be really interesting to, to watch because for them, these issues really matter.
1: Yeah, I think once again, this comes down to the topic of international reputation and how all of these actions can either help or hinder a country's international reputation. But thank you very much, Sharon, for coming in and sharing your thoughts about this wide range of topics. <laughs> I Thanks, really appreciate Brian. it.
0: Great to talk to you.
1: Now, if you had any feedback for us about this podcast or about any of our other podcasts that we've done, or if you have any comments about our articles or anything that we've said today, please contact us. You can find us on Facebook where we're Asian the Pacific Policy Society, or you can tweet us at AppS Policy Forum, or our email is podcast at policyforum.net. That's all from me, Maya. I'll catch you around later.